Welcome to CE Conversations, a clinical podcast presented by Creative Educational Concepts designed to improve clinician performance and optimize patient outcomes. This session, Bridging Chasms in Bladder Cancer Care, an expert case-based review of treatment selection and sequencing in an era of therapeutic novelty, is accredited for 1.5 hours of ACCME credit and supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead. To earn CE credit for this activity, please visit the link in our show notes to complete the post-test and activity evaluation at the conclusion of the podcast. And with that, we'll turn it over to our expert faculty. Thank you, Justin, and welcome, everybody. It's so exciting to be here, so excited to be part of ASCO-GU, and so excited to see everybody. I know we have a lot of colleagues virtually, so we'd like to welcome the virtual attendees as well, make sure they feel included, and please, please, let's make this interactive. Let's learn together, and let's uh, you know, make this a fun event for the next 90 minutes, covering really the spectrum of the emerging data from non-muscle based bladder cancer through muscle invasive disease to metastatic urothelial carcinoma. So there is a number of learning objectives. Uh, I will let you read through that. Um, and uh, obviously, there's so much going on in bladder cancer, and we have a lot of slides today, a lot of content. But we'll try to make it interactive, and hopefully we'll kind of have opportunities for Q&A, again, for an interactive part of learning. Thanks, of course, to the C concepts and everybody worked very hard to make this happen and uh, really, really uh, pleasure for us to work together with that team. This is me. I'm working at the University of Washington, Fred Hudson Cancer Center. I'm serving as the clinical director of the GU group there. I'm a medical oncologist and I'm really excited and thrilled today to work to, to amazing individuals, great human beings and contributors to the GU oncology field. Dr. Samuel Chang, uh, who is, as you see, uh, endowed chair of urologic surgery and professor of urology and oncology and chief surgical officer in Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center. And Sam has been doing so much in the field, so really excited to work with him today. And of course, another good friend, Dr. Scott Tagawa. He's a professor of medicine and urology in Well Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian and have had the chance to visit them recently in New York. But actually, Scott, that day was out of town. I think it was on purpose. <laughs> So we're going to have uh, a lot of content. These are disclosures uh, in terms of our research funding as well as uh, consulting. And special thanks, as I mentioned before, to see concepts. I see Catherine there, Jessica outside, and everybody who worked very hard. And a special thanks to Beacon. And I want to pronounce it correctly. Beacon, at the beacon of hope, or beacon of light. Stephanie is over there in the right corner. Well, a big applause for Stephanie and Beacon. So Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network has been a wonderful organization established in 2005 by Diane Quallen and John Quallen has been a really, really forceful, uh, uh, amazing team who has boost the field forward, has been partnering with us, and was partnering with, of course, colleagues in industry and academia, and has really made a difference in our patients, providing resources, educational, uh, of course, brochures, hotline support groups, research, uh, and so on and so forth. So really, really important to acknowledge uh, what Beacon has been doing. And in that regard, there are opportunities uh, for uh, all of us to be acquainted with what Beacon can provide, print materials, videos, webinars, podcasts, for education, 
information, again, they have a clinical trial dashboard where you can find multiple clinical trials for your patients, locations where the trial is open, and of course, treatment metrics and uh, a lot of uh, podcasts discussing uh, opportunities for patients, again, supporting the patient uh, all the way through. And as I mentioned, there's support line as well. And you can find all of this in more details by scanning. Uh, here's a QR code. So if you scan with your phone, you can go get access to what uh, uh, amazing material and uh, supportive uh, content Beacon has on this institution. So thanks, Stephanie, and everybody in the Beacon team. Now, without further ado, we're going to delve right in, starting from the non-muscle-invasive disease. We'll talk about muscle-invasive later in the metastatic disease, uh, focusing on the body drug conjugate. And it's my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Samuel Tsang, wonderful professor of urology. Sam, the floor is yours. Great. Great. Uh, thank you so much, and um, thanks, obviously, to our, our sponsors, and really so much uh, for our patients have, have really moved the field forward, uh, really with the efforts from Beacon. And uh, I can tell you that uh, the, the, the patient-forward materials that are provided, uh, the clinical dashboards, all those types of things, it's something definitely you should look into and, and, and help distribute because they're absolutely fantastic. So I was asked to pass on of of those in terms of polling of medical oncology versus urology versus others. Um, this will kind of help kind of uh, focus our presentations as we go through because we have uh, a lot of slides and so we want to make sure that we emphasize points that we want to emphasize and we want to um, perhaps move along in areas that we don't need to emphasize as much. So uh, if we have the results of kind of uh, the audience that we have here, that'll give us an idea. So it looks like we've got uh, more than half the group are the medical oncologists. We have some urologists and we have others. So thanks to all of you who are here and this would include also our online colleagues. So thanks so much for participating. Um, we're, we're, we're in an area here where we had a clear dearth of options for our patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, but we've really been able to make a significant change because we have so many more options. So we're gonna start off with a case of a healthy gentleman that uh, actually has a history of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, received BCG at different time periods, but at nine months when he had already had several cycles of BCG, he presents with a positive urine cytology and undergoes what's called a CISVU TRBT. That's a, an enhanced way to evaluate the bladder and is found to have actually persistent high-grade uh, disease with carcinoma in situ as well as TA disease. And at this point, this patient we would consider as BCG unresponsive, clearly a higher-risk population uh, with those patients that are more likely to progress, more likely to have issues, and clearly now we had not had a lot of opportunities in terms of therapy options. So one of the things that we thought about were different ways that we can treat these patients to salvage treat them after BCG unresponsive disease. And so these are options that, that I think you all should all put in. There's no right or wrong answer. Perhaps there is a wrong answer. Remember, this patient had BCG, more BCG, more BCG, and still had CIS and high-grade TA disease. So whoever chooses reinduction BCG, it's probably the urologist because we're not the smartest in the room. Remember that it's something actually that probably is unlikely to work. Other options would be other chemotherapy agents, intravesical chemotherapy other than gemcitabine and docetaxel. We'll talk about that. Systemic therapies such as pembrolizumab, metaferrogen, which we'll discuss, cystectomy and clinical trial. So if we have the results of 
that poll that will give us an idea. Uh, and so we have a majority, and this distribution, I think, really makes sense uh, because there's no set standard therapy at this point yet. There are options, and we'll talk about all these options as, as we go through this. When you look at non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, you know, we want to be aggressive for those tumors that we need to be aggressive, but we also want to de-escalate those treatment uh, parameters for patients that have less aggressive disease. And so risk stratification, just like evaluation of treatment success, I think is increasingly important. So it starts off with performing a good TRBT, and that includes actually getting deep specimens, sending pathologic specimens that are helpful for our pathologists, understanding the importance of repeat TRBT. These are techniques that urologists are well aware of, but do we do this every single time? Oftentimes we don't. And we need to understand that enhanced cystoscopy can help us find lesions that we otherwise would not be able to find because we need to help pathologists as much as possible. I mean, it's too often that we send actually specimens like this to our pathologists where they have to orient specimens, where they have to try to figure out, has this patient got muscle invasive disease in all those different specimens? So whatever we can do to improve our quality of TRBT, I think that'll be very important. Risk stratification continues to be something that evolves. We're so much better now compared to what we used to be, but we're learning that we've got many more steps to take to help determine what we need to do. So one of the things that we've done uh, with guidelines, and this is the AUA, SUO guidelines, is attempt to risk stratify. Um, and by doing this, this is a busy algorithm that you can see up front, but what it takes into account is that it, there's a risk stratification uh, schema for low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk that actually is iterative. And so when you look at this and you divide these patients up, they clearly meet certain criteria, but they also then are predictive of who recurs and who's likely to progress. So importantly, by understanding that, we can either escalate treatment when we need to or de-escalate it when we don't. And so there are lots of guidelines, lots of different methodologies, lots of different ways that we present what's out there. But clearly, the importance of understanding who's at higher risk versus those that are lower risk are important. And so I think the EAU has done a nice job in terms of, again, breaking them out, very similar to our guidelines in terms of the AUA, but also teasing out certain risk factors that put patients at higher risk disease. And I think that's important. So when understanding that, let's look at how we risk stratify and what we do in terms of treatment. And first, we need to use BCG appropriately. BCG for the medical oncologist, I think you all understand, it is our standard treatment. It is our treatment of choice. It is a treatment that we use for decades for high-risk disease. And understanding that BCG is effective for the majority of patients is important. But then we have issues and changes. There's been a significant BCG shortage, one in which there's been a, a, a somewhat random distribution scheme of who gets BCG, who doesn't. There are patients in, this, in the same city who see different physicians where physicians within a few blocks cannot get BCG versus those who can. We actually queried uh, Merck. We, we hadn't heard anything publicly for more than a year and a half when we actually approached Merck and asked them these questions. And they're making attempts to improve and increase production with a new uh, facility and that type of thing, but we're still... Uh, hundreds of thousands shorts of vials in terms of what's needed. And so we need to do a good job of risk stratification and understanding that. Part of that is utilizing actually intravesical therapies other than BCG. 
and understanding that they can be effective. So for the urologist in the audience, one of the key kind of uh, innovations that's been reported at this meeting, actually several years at different time points, is the combination intravesical chemotherapy of gemcitabine that our medical oncologists are well aware of, understanding the effectiveness of that systemically, but combining it with docetaxel and actually placing it in the bladder. And in terms of effectiveness, this is, seems to be a very effective regimen for those patients who are either BCG naive or BCG unresponsive. More recently, this is work out of Columbia looking at triplet therapy. So uh, oncologists are converting, oh, here we've got uh, monotherapy, we've got doublet therapy, and this is actually a triplet therapy adding cabazitaxel to the combination of gemcitabine and, and platinum. So uh, again, attempts to do things intravesically to treat those patients with BCG unresponsive disease. And if you look at two-year um, response-free rates in terms of being disease-free, um, at 24 months, 64%, these were in BCG unresponsive disease. So understanding that there are treatment alternatives, none of these are yet FDA approved, but they are now being used more commonly. An important breakthrough that you all should be familiar with is the FDA approval. Actually, this was in December of 2022, just a couple months ago, looking at the first gene therapy, and this is natafaragine, looking specifically at those patients for BCG unresponsive disease, and it has been FDA approved. And so this was based upon looking at uh, an agent, natafaragine, which is actually a replication-deficient adenovirus that utilizes and augments um, uh, interferon alpha. So interferon alpha has been put in the bladder in the past, it showed some minimal effectiveness, but this is actually an augmented attempt to magnify the impact of this. And this is actually a treatment given once every three months, and the response rates were actually quite significant. If you look at for CIS as well as for um, TA, T1 tumors, by three months, you had a response rate of more than half actually were disease-free. And a significant percentage of those patients were able to maintain that at the one-year mark. So here's their durability. These are for patients with CIS vis-a-vis uh, -vis those patients with high-grade TA, T1 disease. And you can see that over time, there is some loss of efficacy, but there is a cohort, just as we see with other types of immunotherapy that have persistent, durable, long-term responses. So this has been FDA approved as an intravesical therapy for BCGN responsive disease, but we do not have it yet commercially available. Um, there are thoughts that it may be at least several months, if not longer, before it becomes uh, actually clinically available. So we've talked about for risk stratification using BCG carefully and appropriately, understanding other intravesical options, but from a urologic surgery standpoint, we need to understand that cystectomy still plays an important role. And understanding that delay of cystectomy ultimately can be harmful for these patients. Um, and so there's, there are certain terms and topics that we've talked about in terms of, hey, some of these patients may need to go straight to cystectomy. Uh, and that would in, in include you know, certain characteristics. And the reason and rationale behind that is we know that radical cystectomy for the vast majority of these patients is curative. Uh, and we understand that the five-year survival rate is quite high. The, the, the problem is, 
is that there is significant morbidity associated with cystectomy. Um, and when we look at that, we understand that, okay, a significant percentage of patients can recur and can progress if we don't take out their bladders, but we weigh that against their morbidity of performing the cystectomy. The complication rate of cystectomy at Vanderbilt is 40%. So when you tell that to patients uh, and understanding the possible quality of life issues, we really need to kind of balance out who gets a timely cystectomy and who doesn't. And this is a slide that I've shown for a long time. I'm not uh, a complicated person. I, I, I like simplicity. I like an idea of what's important and what's not. And there are certain things that really drive us to do an early cystectomy. Um, and timely cystectomy is actually a term that was, was introduced by Dr. Michael Cookson, who's in the audience. I don't want to embarrass him, but he's sitting there right over there. He actually introduced the term uh, in the Gold Journal more than two decades ago Understanding that there are certain characteristics, high-grade T1 disease, um, looking at lymphovascular invasion, the depth of involvement, CIS, there's certain characteristics that would drive you to moving to a timely cystectomy. And understanding when you can't um, perform a uh, TRBT successfully or safely, another indication to move ahead. And clearly, variant histologies, where we have not shown really any effective intravesical therapy, we need to consider it. So systemic therapies, uh, I think the medical oncologists are well aware of the use of systemic immunotherapy and specifically systemic pembrolizumab has been studied in this non-muscle invasive bladder cancer group that is BCG unresponsive. And if you look at uh, kind of the response, again, there is a signal at the three month mark of around 40% that have the disease free state and a percentage of those, again, at one year are able to maintain that. And if you look at uh, kind of the, the, the plots of who succeeds and who doesn't, it's the minority of patients that respond, but the, the, those that do respond tend to have a long-term response. So as a result, we have an FDA-approved intravesical therapy, but we also have an FDA-approved systemic therapy, and that's pembrolizumab. Importantly, our clinical trials uh, we need to, to continue to do that, and we're quite fortunate in that this space has exploded. Uh, one of the trials more recently that's been published and actually uh, uh, in New England Journal uh, evidence has been published, but also is going to be uh, actually discussed again in abstract form by Dr. Chamey in UCLA uh, uh, later on tomorrow, is again the impact of certain combinations. This is a combination of N803 plus BCG. N803 is an IL-15 um, actually super agonist that hopefully uh, augments the response. And if you look at kind of comparisons, and this is unfair because we have different patient populations, but, but clearly there seems to be a robust long-term response with this combination agent. So uh, what's next? I think uh, all the trials are looking at therapies at a sooner date combination therapies, understanding the role of augmenting and supplementing actually these combination therapies. And this is for BCG-exposed patients as well as for BCG-naive. I think if you look at current salvage therapies for BCG-unresponsive disease, we've got FDA-approved agents now, which we really hadn't had in the past that were successful. So we have natafaragine, the intravesical space. We have pembrolizumab in the systemic space. And then we have promising trials that are ongoing. So one of these promising trials is something that, that, that uh, Dr. Rivas wanted to, to emphasize, and I think it's very important, is you know, we've got some data looking at 
chemotherapy within the intravesical group. And so there's a cooperative trial, cooperative group trial looking at actually the gemcitabine docetaxel that I mentioned, but actually going head to head and actually doing that um, in, in a patient population that was BCG naive. So understanding that more BCG, more BCG isn't necessarily effective when we have these options. Let's go to this uh, question here, um, which is a, a patient with CIS that receives BCG, um, gets BCG maintenance, and is then seen and has persistent disease. Um, excellent performance status, but says, you know what, I don't want to have a cystectomy done. Uh, I want to have any, actually another option. So this is a bit tricky because it's a, a not question. So if you look at these, which would be reasonable to uh, receive? We just talked about the study trial of gemcitabine and docetaxel, and we've shown the data regarding that. We talked about the FDA approval of IV pembrolizumab as well as renatafaragine. And then we just talked about reinduction BCG may not be helpful, but I don't want to give away the answer. So you guys uh, plug that in and uh, We'll, we'll save the results, or should we show that? I, I'm not sure if we want to go ahead and show that, because I don't want to embarrass the urologist who put the wrong answer down. So uh, if we have the results back yet. So, so this is an attempt to see if we've, we've shown any differences in terms of pre and post. And afterwards, there were more, pay, uh, more people who have looked at pembrolizumab as well as natafaragine in terms of treatment. Um, and then understanding, though, correctly that the wrong answer is giving more BCG. Um, so in this patient who's already received BCG to give more really doesn't make sense. So in terms of conclusions, BCG really is the treatment of choice. It's a study point comparison. Importantly, though, we're starting to look at trials that are going against BCG, actually comparing to see if they can be used as first line. Understanding that we have FDA-approved agents, natafaragine as well as pembrolizumab, uh, and understanding that clinical trials continue to be important. We have exciting data. We're waiting for FDA approval for other agents. I, I think on the horizon, um, at this time next year, I would not be surprised, uh, and I actually would expect that there are going to be other agents that are FDA-approved that are going to be equally effective, if not more so than the currently available agents how we sequence them is a question that I'm sure Dr. Grievous is going to want to ask. And right now we don't know. But it's an exciting time, and thank you for your attention. Sam, this was a fantastic presentation in a very you know, rich content in a very efficient amount of time. You know, Petrus, I just look at you, and you're the model of, of uh, being able to um, present a lot of data in a short period of time. So I take that as a huge compliment from you. Great, great it. job. And actually, I have one quick question for you already, and then we can okay. talk about the sequence of therapies okay. as you brought it up. So one of our colleagues in the audience is asking, when this new gene therapy becomes commercially available, not the Faragen, Faragenovac, okay. sure. how do you anticipate this will change your current standard of care? Yeah, I, I think that uh, from... Uh, from a urologic standpoint, uh, there, there has been, uh, I, I wouldn't use the word reluctance, but there's not been a huge kind of uh, uptake of using systemic immunotherapy for those patients that have non-muscle invasive disease, even though BCG unresponsive, even though with a risk of progression. So to have an FDA-approved alternative that is an intravesical treatment 
that is given once every three months, basically once a quarter, uh, could be a significant improvement, and I, I think there'll be uptake. The issue is there's going to be a learning curve on how to give this. This is gene therapy. This, there are certain uh, requirements of how to use this safely, how to store it, what to do. And so there's going to be a learning curve required uh, with that. Um, but to have a true alternative, I think, is exciting. I think it's very exciting to have options for our patients. Oh, absolutely. Perfectly, Sam. I agree with you. Absolutely. So, Scott, what do you think here? We're going to have options like systemic intravenous pembrolizumab, Sam just talked about endofarazifredenovec intravesical. Intravesical chemotherapy oh, is still something you're using, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, think, I think a question that I can throw back to you all is, how often do you see the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer group? Of, of 100 of your bladder cancer patients, what's the percentage of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that you see to give immunotherapy to? Uh, it's a, well, so... In, in the real world, I think in private practice, I think it's it's very low. An academic center where a lot of the trials go are multidisciplinary, where we might be giving only systemic therapy or a combination of systemic therapy and intravesical, we see them more frequently. Um, you know, the, these a lot of these that lead to accelerated approval are called phase three trials, non-randomized. So I think it's reasonable. Separate studies that really can't be compared. They're in the neurologist's hands. I think it's fine to give intravesical therapy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that it's better or worse, but I think it's fine. Uh, I also, as you mentioned, combinations that make sense. You know, that those are, these are the basic principles of, of oncology, um, non-cost resistant combinations. Absolutely, I agree. And, and you know, interesting question, Sam. And you know, I can share with you in the University of Washington, we have this multidisciplinary bladder cancer clinic. Mostly for muscle invasive disease. Sure. But more recently, we see a little bit more of BCG responsive NMIPC, those right. patients. And we have a discussion about clinical trial, if available, intravesical chemotherapy, nantofaragine may be available soon, yes. or systemic pembrolizumab. It's a good discussion with the patient oh, absolutely. to hear all the approaches. But I would say the uptake of intravenous pembro has been lower than expected. Sure. At least in my practice. No, no. I, and I agree. And I think, uh, I, and I think, that it will be with ongoing trials, the question is how much augmentation the systemic immunotherapy will add to some other type of uh, intravesical component. So I, I, uh, I, I look forward to the trials, I look forward to seeing the results, but your question regarding how you're going to sequence them, nobody knows. Uh, and you, know, you had pointed out uh, similarly how, how the medical oncologists have also thought about, okay, post-chemotherapy, how, how do you line things up? What do you do? What do you consider? And I think the, the characteristics that you brought out in terms of patient characteristics, disease characteristics, bladder capacity characteristics. So for, for us, uh, in those patients, people ask me, who, who do you refer for systemic immunotherapy? Some patients have had so many intravesical therapies that their bladders are, are, have significant uh, problems with volume and contractility and compliance and they still don't want their bladders removed, it's difficult to justify another intravesical treatment. And so for those patients, I definitely lean towards attempting a systemic therapy. Uh, so there's a lot to balance out in terms of, of where you're gonna go next and what do you do. Um, and and I, I think as treating physicians, you're gonna be balancing all of those things. Absolutely, and I think you guessed perfectly the next question, which is realistically, pragmatically, how many lines of therapy can we sequence in BCG responsive NMIBC. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think that's going to be a real question. I think I I, uh, I don't go to Vegas often. <laughs> uh, I I I really think there's going to be one or two winners, uh, and those are going to supersede the others. So. There, there are going to be more, fortunately, FDA-approved agents that are going to be, I think, much less commonly used. So which of those are going to actually win out? I don't know. It could be a treatment schedule. Uh, it could be difficulty with handling the treatment of what you do with it. Where do you store it? How do you give it? Uh, it, it and, and, you know, to me, it's unclear what's going to win. Is it going to be efficacy data totally, or is it going to be safety data and tolerability? I don't know. I think it's going to be a combination of all those things. And, and the issue is, uh, and this is good, is that every treatment has actually different success and efficacy and different side effect profile, different delivery schedules, different delivery options. And so how you balance that is going to be patient-physician dependent, I think. 100%. And you covered all these factors, right, we yeah. take into account. Maybe last question, Sam, for you. Sure. The FDA is looking at the data with the NH03 plus BCG. Any thoughts you have how this will play out or? You know, I, 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 I haven't presented the, to the FDA uh, regarding this. I think that, uh, and, and I'm an investigator for NH03, so everybody needs to know that. I, I think the, the data, and you can't compare, uh, you know, to compare it, that unfair slide that was shown, it's it's an unfair slide because it's not direct apples to to apples, but but the safety and the efficacy data is very persuasive. So if there's no issues, I think with with safety and and uh, production and manufacturing, I, I think I th I think it'll be uh, approved and uh, approved quickly. Uh, just because it, it clearly does have significant efficacy. Uh, great safety tolerability profile, uh, and it's yet another alternative in, in patients who really still don't have a lot of alternatives. Absolutely, and I'm great. sure Stephanie is smiling because we have many more options for the patients. Oh, much so, much so. Absolutely. Great. Oh, thanks, thanks so much. Yep. What a wonderful presentation and great discussion. I think we're on time, and I'm going to jump right into the muscle invasive disease. I hope everybody is doing well. Again, people in the audience here and on virtually, please you know, chime in, ask questions. Let's make this interactive. So I'm going to uh, travel you know, relatively fast here because there's so much data to cover. But I want to point out that the bladder cancer is a very common cancer, the, most, the fourth most common cancer in men, and the sixth most common if you have both genders. And I think it's the most expensive cancer to treat on a per patient basis, from diagnosis to death. So very, very important for, you know, and I, I, I talked to our industry colleagues there to keep investing to find more treatments for our patients. And obviously we have to improve the cure rates, we have to improve overall survival, progression-free survival, and of course, uh, uh, have patients have a better quality of life. I just mentioned a minute ago, I had the opportunity to discuss the multidisciplinary bladder cancer clinic that we have at the University of Washington. And I put that here, it's a wonderful clinic that was set up by my colleagues uh, before I, I went to the, uh, uh, back to the University of Washington, I was in Cleveland Clinic at the time, uh, by uh, Dr. Montgomery, Dr. Wright, and others at UW. And uh, this is a one-stop shop for our patients. Uh, and this is when the patients come in on Tuesday morning for patients uh, at, the, at, the, at its uh, week. Uh, and they see urologic oncology, medical oncology, and radiation 
physician oncology, pathologist and radiologist. And uh, these patients are being evaluated. We have images review, pathology review by GU pathology experts, radiologists that are specializing in um, bladder cancer. We actually, we published a manuscript that about 6% of the patients, uh, we actually have a, a change in the plan based on this expert review. So I think it's a basic patient-centered approach. It takes a lot of resources. And of course, we're partnering with great colleagues you know, in other centers. I see Dr. Zhao in the, in the group there. We, we share patients, and it's wonderful to have this dialogue and communication uh, with colleagues uh, uh, from other uh, cancer centers. So I think th that slide just talks about the, the importance of a multidisciplinary approach in bladder cancer management that we have at the University of Washington and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. The, uh, the slide that I'm showing you here is really, really a thousand feet view of the different therapy settings. And Dr. Chang did a fantastic job covering the non-muscle invasive disease. I'll spend some time for the localized curative intent muscle invasive bladder cancer, and then we'll talk about metastatic disease. So there is no uh, doubt in my mind that neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy, either with dose densemvac or gemcerapine cisplatin, either or, uh, has a standard role uh, before radical cystectomy, left no dissection, and neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy prolongs overall survival. It's uh, often better tolerated compared to giving it adjuvantly after surgery, and obviously we want to maximize the impact on outcomes, and we have phase three trials showing this overall survival benefit with new adjuvant standard-based chemo, and at the same time, we, we try to achieve uh, pathological complete response for our patients, which is a, a surrogate uh, for great outcomes in the context of new adjuvant chemotherapy. It can help us get some information about the tumor biology. As I mentioned before, the SWOG 8710 uh, trial in US and the EURTC trial in Europe showed significant overall survival benefit with cisplatin-based combination chemotherapy with what I think is a, a both clinically significant and statistically significant improvement in overall survival. I think the important point is we do not use carboplatin in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting in bladder cancer. If someone cannot get cisplatin based on GASC criteria or, uh, or let's say a derivation of that, either can go right up front to surgery or to clinical trials. So we have plenty of those. Or, uh, of course, uh, to bladder preservation for well-selected patients. Now, there is a lot of discussion, and we, we, we discuss with colleagues about the dilemma, dose dense and vac with growth factor support or GEMCs. I would say briefly, there is no huge difference demonstrated in clinical trials. There was this phase three VESPER trial that was presented last year by Dr. Feister, uh, I think it was ESMO, and Dr. Grante was a representer. That trial tried to compare the two regimens. There were some methodological questions. For example, they allowed neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy, and also the number of cycles. They had six cycles of dose dense and VAC and four cycles of GEMCs. Bottom line, there was a suggestion that there is a trend towards disease-free survival benefit with a dose-dense MVAC. Uh, and you see there are very small numerical difference in pathological complete response rates. If you ask me, my bias is in fit patients where I feel comfortable with, I favor dose-dense MVAC uh, in patients who I think I'm tolerated. But there is significant variability, and I'm very comfortable uh, when someone gets MCs. Uh, Scott, any comments on your preferred new adjuvant regimen outside of a clinical trial? Uh, yeah, dose-dense MVAC. So Cora Sternberg, who is credited with this regimen, actually helped develop MVAC as well. Um, even before she came to our institution, um, that would be my preferred regimen. Um, but not everyone is going to be able to tolerate it, so cisplatin, I think, is the key, uh, cisplatin combinations. Sam, any Vanderbilt kind of uh, approach? You know, the 
I think very much to Scott's uh, uh, kind of comments, our, our preference is Dostan Simvac. Uh, but, but uh, you know, and it's, honestly, it's investigator dependent as well. Uh, so I, I would say the preference has been Dostan. Uh, and, and the rationale behind that is, is at least from a trial standpoint, the, this is, uh, shows some equivalence. And the equivalence data is for metastatic disease. It really hasn't been large. No studies in terms of neoadjuvants, so we tend to lead to dose dense and VAC. And just for the audience, the way dose dense and VAC is given is one drug after the other, all on one day, uh, at least how we give it, and then growth factor support every two weeks. Uh, Scott, do you give it the same way? So, um, so I'd say, not to really correct you, but to <laughs> clarify. Um, so there's accelerated MVAC, which yes. can be done all in one day, and there's dose-dense, which is the traditional Correct. methotrexate in day one, um, and then the other drugs on, on day two. You know, I, it, there's trade-offs in terms of convenience, but one, one advantage I take, one, one advantage of the two-day regimen that I sometimes find useful is that I can give them hydration on day one and day two. And, and just for the clarification, great point by Scott, Accelerate the MVAC is what I described with all drugs on day one, and the dose dense is if you give day one and day two. And it's kind of variation among different centers how they do it, and of course, the, where the patient lives, right? If it's close by versus far away from the cancer center. But either way, I think it's very reasonable. Uh, and in either scenario, you give growth factor support, right? Uh, okay. And we do four cycles for node negative disease. That's what you do. Okay. Uh, consistency here. So. Again, there is uh, some data in this particular slide looking at the different toxicities, maybe some trend towards a little bit uh, more fatigue, uh, nausea, vomiting, and anemia with those than Zemvac. Again, there's a tra trade-off uh, to some degree. That's why I think patient selection is very important, like everything we do in medicine and oncology. Now, we discussed expanding-based chemotherapy. There is uh, definitely effort and many attempts to build upon the backbone of splatin-based chemotherapy and try to see whether the addition of immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors adds value or not, right, in the dose and Zenvac or GEMSYS. Uh, and uh, I see uh, in that particular slide different trials, five trials that looked upon the question of chemotherapy plus checkpoint inhibitor in single-arm phase two designs. And the take-home point is that the pathological complete response rate looked promising, but of course we need phase three trials to see whether the addition of checkpoint inhibition adds survival benefit, event-free survival, or overall survival benefit. And at least for now, I'm not using checkpoint inhibitor outside clinical trials in the new adjuvant setting. Would you agree with that statement, both of you? Sounds great. So definitely we're excited about clinical trials, and this enthusiasm comes because the phase two trials look very promising. In that particular slide, you know, the question is, can checkpoint inhibition in the new adjuvant setting have a role? And you see data from the PEMBRO, Pure 01 trial by Andrea Neck in Italy, and the Tezolizumab by Abacus trial by Tom Pauls in UK. And you see that the pathological complete response rate look pretty compelling. Again, we have to validate these results in phase three trials are not ready for prime time. And of course, there is a series of other trials uh, in this particular slide. You see uh, uh, trials with single agent or combination immunotherapy. All of them, again, phase two trials look very promising, but we have to wait for phase three ongoing trials looking at different combinations or single agents uh, of immunotherapy agents uh, in neoadjuvant setting, and those trials have to read out. And maybe in a few years from now, we may have more data about neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibitor, but for now, uh, the neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibitor is experimental in clinical trials. 
What about adjuvant uh, therapy? And before I go to adjuvant therapy, I think we're going to ask the question here to the audience. Uh, and the question is, how often do you check pd one expression in patients with metastatic disease? So we're, we're going to talk metastatic disease in a second, but just a preemptive question. When you see a patient with metastatic urothelial cancer, bladder, upper tract, or urethra, how often do you check pd one expression in that patient? Does it make a difference in your practice? I was promised some Greek music, but I don't hear Greek music, but that's okay. Oh, you get music. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get music. <laughs> Okay, so there's a variety of different answers here. I like it, thank you. So some people never, 30, about 30%, uh, and some others, uh, they check it. Scott, what do you think? What do you do? So some of the times I get it without asking, honestly, because um, across the board, um, some of our pathologists just do what they think is lung cancer or whatever else. And, and you know, in the past, we did ask for it more, um, and, and I also, you know, might use it for retrospective research or not. But generally, in terms of me asking for that to make a difference in terms of what I'm going to do, not useful. Not useful. Sam, any comments yeah, I, on that? I don't, uh, our medical oncologists, I don't think they often, I think early on when FDA indications type uh, tended to kind of influence those decisions, now it's, it's very uh, uncommon. Uh, that they, they do it. But it's, it's funny what Scott said. Some of us, our pathologists will automatically run the, the IHC or whatever test and then, uh, and do our, our medical oncologists uh, put any weight on that? No, they don't, so. I'm, I'm with you, I, I, I'm not checking at all pitilon expression uh, and, and, and we'll go through the data in a second, but I want to see what the uh, colleagues in the audience uh, think. So, um, Let's see here. Uh, that's another question that I'm seeing. And the question is, I think we just talked about it, right? Yeah. yeah. So the big question that happens often in the clinic is I see a patient uh, who comes to me um, after uh, radical cystectomy. Obviously, patients who are um, you know, seen by our urologists, they, they are being sent to us before for discussion about neoadjuvant chemo, but what happens if you see a patient in the clinic who already has undergone radical cystectomy lymph node dissection and you know, comes to discuss adjuvant chemo, and this patient has never received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, chemotherapy naive. And, and we wrote this editorial, it's, a lot of time has passed, six, seven years ago now, with a, uh, a, some good friends you see in this slide, and the take-home point, at least in my practice, is if I see a patient who is fit for cisplatin, not carbo, but cisplatin, and they have never got neoadjuvant chemo, and they have T3 or T4, or not positive disease, I'm offering this patient cisplatin-based chemotherapy adjuvantly. Uh, if a patient has already received neoadjuvant chemo, there's no good evidence to give more. It's already given neoadjuvantly. Scott, any comments on this? Agree. I mean, so, you know, hopefully this is in cisplatin unfit, um, or, you know, occasionally for non-muscle invasive disease, you do cystectomy and it's node positive or something like that. Yeah. Any comments, Sam, from you? No, we, we uh, to, to be honest, we uh, had not historically uh, referred patients for either neoadjuvant or adjuvant. Uh, f 15 years ago, we, we really didn't. Uh, we didn't have a lot of options. We didn't, we didn't think that there was really anything effective. I think now 
perioperative use, either neoadjuvant or in the adjuvant setting, well, yeah, I would say 95% of our patients with invasive cancer see our medical oncologist pre-op and post-op. Excellent, excellent, thanks, some great points. So there has been an important trial by Dr. Biddle in the UK and the team there called the POW trial. This is after nephroureterectomy in upper trigeothelial cancer fully resected with no evidence of disease. And the question is whether adjuvant chemotherapy should be given in those patients. As you see, this was adjuvant gemcerabine cisplatin in most patients and so disease-free survival and metastasis-free survival benefits uh, with adjuvant gemcis versus observation. Uh, so this trial was practice changing and this was for pathologic T2 or higher T stage or node positive disease uh, with uh, upper tract urothelial carcinoma. Uh, in my practice, I offer uh, those patients adjuvant chemo if they had never given, uh, they were never given neoadjuvant chemo before. The big question remains for the cisplatin ineligible patients, and they, there was a small subset in the trial, CarboGem was given in 96 patients. It's a big debate whether CarboGem should be considered or not in the adjuvant setting, based on this small sample size with large confidence interval. Um, Scott, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so, you know, it, it depends. So, just talking about preoperative, uh, we don't have the same level of evidence, but because I, I know, not that I know 100%, but almost everyone is going to have a decrease in renal function with one kidney, I will generally give neoadjuvants when I, when I can, when they have two kidneys that are, that are there without level one evidence, um, extrapolation. Um, someone that has, let's say, again, node positivity or something like that, um, you know, based on, so we're not there yet, but in terms of adjuvant PD-1, you know, there's some data that the upper tracts are, are maybe going to be FGFR3 driven, maybe less responsive to immunotherapy. So would, that would be the situation where I might consider adjuvant gem carbo. So it's a small subset in a perioperative setting where I would consider carbo. That might be the, that one time. Very, very few selected patients with really high risk disease, and you cannot give cisplatin, you're worried about it. Sam, any comments? Uh, we definitely uh, tend to push neoadjuvant, and uh, just like Scott was saying, I mean, we, we've gotten some evidence, uh, Jonathan Coleman's uh, group and, and the folks there at Memorial recently published in JCO looking at um, their combination, and they risk stratified not necessarily by stage, actually, but by high-grade disease. So it's basically high-grade disease clinically, uh, clinically invasive, but the only real criteria was that they had to have high-grade disease. Um, and, and they had, um, you know, pathologic uh, response and pathologic, some pathologic CRs as well. Uh, but, and, and their endpoint was actually pathologic response and not necessarily actually disease outcomes. But similar to, to neoadjuvant chemotherapy for the bladder, if you're successful and you're able to get a pathologic response, and it was a pathologic complete response, the disease progression curves as well as um, cancer-specific survival curves were much different, were much beneficial in terms of being able to, to gain some benefit. Our oncologists do give gem carbo um, post if they haven't received it neoadjuvant, if they have high-risk disease. I, 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 we don't push them hard when they do that. Uh, but they'll be also the first to say this, this may not be as effective, but I'd rather do this. So. 
and that illustrates the need for clinical trials uh, in that space. And I, I just want to give a shout out to the, the ECOC Acrin AT192 trial. This is a trial that we're running with Dr. Ginny Hoffman Sensitz. It's a new adjuvant trial for upper trigonophilial cancer. And we do dose dense MVAC with or without durvalumab, a phase three trial to follow up on the data that you quoted some. There's some phase two trial data with the chemotherapy in upper tract. And also we have a cisplatin ineligible cohort, durvalumab gemcitabine. So if, if you guys have opportunity to open that trial, it's great. ECOC Akron A2192, it's a cooperative group trial looking for new adjuvant chemotherapy, immunotherapy combination. Now, what about adjuvant checkpoint inhibitors? We have three important adjuvant, purely adjuvant uh, immunotherapy trials. In Vigo 010, this was uh, a trial asking the question of tezolizumab or observation as adjuvant therapy for patients with resected urothelial carcinoma, upper tract or bladder, and patients were allowed to receive neoadjuvant chemo, but it was uh, also not mandatory. So patients may or not have received neoadjuvant chemo. This was a negative trial, no significant disease-free survival benefit and no OS benefit with adjuvant atezolizumab observation in the Invigor 010, so this did not change practice. Obviously, when you, know, you lose a game in basketball, you want to learn how, why you lost the game, right? And uh, I, I love basketball and I also love research, and that actually a study we published with Tom Powell's and colleagues in Nature looking at the cDNA as a putative prognostic biomarker. And the question here is, if you have positive cDNA, detectable cDNA, after surgery, you have a much higher chance of recurrence or death. It's a negative prognostic biomarker. You see that in the observation arm. The big question is, is it whether it is or not a predictive biomarker of benefit to atezolizumab. The paper we published in Nature showed that potentially, yes, if you have CDNA positive, you may benefit from atezo. When you CDNA negative, you do not. Obviously, this is an exploratory point of the trial. This did not change practice, but definitely raised enthusiasm and set the stains for the next trial in Vigor 011. In that trial, only CDNA positive patients then will be randomized to a T0 placebo. Those with CDNA negative will not be on the trial. So that will evaluate the clinical utility of CDNA. Similar trial by our friends in Denmark, Dr. Discrot uh, and colleagues are doing a trial similar adjuvant setting detectable DNA uh, in the plasma atezo negative surveillance that will uh, show whether this adds value there. Uh, and we're waiting to see those trials. And the next trial by Dr. Galski in Alliance, very interesting design, DNA positive patients, nivolumab, adjuvantly plus minus relatlimab and LAG3 uh, inhibitor, and CDNA negative patients, NIVO or surveillance and with NIVO at progression. And that trial, I think, is going to answer this question about the clinical utility of CDDNA in the adjuvant setting. Now, I mentioned the adjuvant natizo trial, but what about the adjuvant NIVO trial? This was a positive trial, very similar design, checkmate to 7-4, phase three trial, a resected urothelial carcinoma, upper tract or bladder. Patients may or not have received neoadjuvant chemo, got nivolumab or placebo in the adjuvant setting, and they were stratified, as you see in the right part of the slide. And that trial met the primary point of disease-free survival benefit, hazard ratio 0.70, and the hazard ratio was even lower in patients with p high or positive tumors. And that trial resulted in the FDA approval of nivolumab in patients with high-risk disease who meet the inclusion criteria of that particular trial. And the interesting thing is that the FDA approved it in all comers, regardless of p expression. In Europe, the EMA approved it only in p high patients. So some interesting discrepancy how the regulatory agencies read this data. 
And of course, we have the tiebreaker ambassador trial. And this is trial looking at pembrolizumab versus observation in the adjuvant setting. I think that trial is going to report in the next year or two. Dr. Apollo from the NCI is running, is, uh, running this trial, and we're interested to see whether this will be the tiebreaker between a negative and a positive trial. So very quickly, take home messages. Clinical trials are my favorite two words. It's what I think in the morning when I wake up. And of course, splatin-based chemotherapy is the best we have, ideally neoadjuvantly, uh, as we mentioned before. Adjuvanivo has FDA approval in all comers regardless of epithelial expression in patients uh, after uh, a radical surgery with or without neoadjuvant chemotherapy. It's an option to discuss with the patients. We have not seen overall survival data yet from the Checkmate 274 trial we're waiting. Ambassador, adjuvant pembro observation, is uh, uh, close to accrual. The PROOF-302 trial that was an adjuvant FGFR inhibitor in selected patients based on the biomarker versus placebo actually was terminated. We're actually looking to see in this contemporaneous cohort what is the incidence of FGFR3 mutations and fusions. So that's something we're going to look at and present in the future meeting. And of course, circulating tumor DNA has emerging very interesting data, but in my opinion, remains experimental. And the question to you guys is, are you using cDNA in the adjuvant setting to make a decision? Scott, we'll start with you. Uh, no, not, not outside of a clinical trial. Some the same not thing? Yet, no. We think alike, the three of us. So uh, to me, we have to wait for these phase three yeah. trials to establish clinical utility. Uh, and variant histologies, I did not mention much about it, but there's a huge interest we have and hopefully more trials in the variant histology setting. Uh, as you see, I'm trying to pace myself uh, quicker because there's so much data. Uh, but for blood preservation, I want to, to make the point that it's a very important consideration in well-selected patients. About 10 to 20% of patients in our practice are ideal candidates for blood preservation. The backbone of that is maximum TURBT, followed by concurrent chemotherapy and radiation. And we have actually uh, a couple of clinical trials looking at the addition of checkpoint inhibitors in that chemoradiation backbone. So the Sorganazid 1806 is maximum TURBT followed by concurrent chemoradiation, and there are three chemotherapies allowed, one, one of the three is given, uh, plus minus atezolizumab. So the question is, atezo, does it add value to chemoradiation? Uh, very important trial. It's about three quarters accrued, so more to come. So uh, uh, very quickly, uh, the question, uh, maybe Sama will ask you first, uh, maybe, you, maybe you can ask me a question, actually, because you have the iPad. Yeah, because we'll you always, I mean, we learn, I've got gray hair, so I've learned the best way to answer a question is to ask a question. <laughs> so uh, this is a virtual question. Uh, if uh, the second line of treatments, uh, combination of chemo discussed earlier on, fails, uh, is there any third line of therapy to use? Is that for metastatic disease? Uh, it's unclear from the question, but let's say for metastatic disease. So let's say that question. Oh, this is, I think, a classic one that people are asked, and uh, I, I think there's certain rationale behind this. How do you explain the negative atezolizumab adjuvant trial versus the positive uh, nivolumab adjuvant trial? That's a very long answer. I'll try to be concise, which is not easy, but you know, I'm from Athens and we give long answers. The Spartans are more laconic. So I'll try to be laconic, but uh, the, I think there are many differences. Number one, PD-1 versus pd one inhibition. Does it matter? We do not know. This is a very hand-waving answer because nobody has really compared the two in, the, in bladder cancer. So I, I do not think it's the answer to our question, but some people 
underlined there's a difference between the two trials, PD-1 versus PD-1 inhibitor. But I think more importantly, in my opinion, is that the performance of the control group was very different in the two trials. Okay. In the adjuvant atezolizumab observation was the control and performed pretty well. The median disease-free survival was, I think, 16.6 months, while the performance, the median DFS of uh, placebo on the adjuvant was only 10.9 months. So about six months difference in DFS in the performance of the control group. I'm not saying that's the only answer, but it's definitely relevant because it can affect the delta. So I think the performance of the control group may, may have played a role. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Sam. So you don't think there is a innate difference between PD-1 versus PDL one I'm not convinced it is. Okay. Numerically, you know, to your point, if you look at the response rates in individual separate trials, anti-PD-1 has given numerically high response rate, but I cannot have any concrete evidence to say one is better than the other in urothelial cancer. You think there's a difference? Based on randomized trial. I think based upon kind of mechanism plus the, the data, there may be a little bit of a trend for increased efficacy with PD-1 and a little bit of a trend for increased safety with PD-L1, but in the real world, I don't know if that's really different. Really difference, okay. Uh, another question here, it's so good to have the iPad, I really like this. When, when is overall safety data expected from Checkmate 274? Overall safety? No, uh, survival. Survival, yeah. great question. I wish I knew the answer. It's a great question, whoever asked, I don't know. Uh, we keep asking, and obviously this is an event-driven endpoint, so the answer we're getting is that they do not have enough events, which actually, if you think about it, it's a good thing. People live longer. Right. So. So, yeah, that's right. so there's a presentation on that trial tomorrow. I didn't know what it was, it was gonna be OS or not. I guess it's not, if you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. We'll have to wait for the data. <laughs> so tomorrow, oh, check me to 7.4 updates. <laughs> So I will try to run through quickly to allow time for Scott uh, as well. And I will talk about metastatic urothelial carcinoma from bladder or upper tract or urethra. And I think in my mind, after many attempts to replace platinum-based chemotherapy, in my practice, when I go back to Seattle on actually Tuesday, it's a working day, then my, my patient in clinic who comes with metastatic urothelial cancer, and if they're fit to get platinum-based chemotherapy, they will get induction platinum-based chemotherapy. Ideally with cisplatin, if I can, that's my preferred option. My plan B is carboplatin. And I, we, we definitely uh, uh, have data for quite some time now looking at that question. The trial I'm showing you here is an old trial looking at GEMSYS compared to the older classical conventional MVAC. Uh, that MVAC is not used anymore. It's not the dose-dense MVAC. Uh, Dr. Tagawa mentioned that Dr. Sternberg did the trial with the dose-dense MVAC versus the classic MVAC, and dose-dense MVAC looks a trend towards longer survival and easier to give. So the big question is GEMSYS or dose-dense MVAC in metastatic disease? I think most of us use GEMSYS, right, Scott? Metastatic urothelial cancer. And, and I, the question, of course, is you know, many patients may not be able to tolerate cisplatin, and that's a common problem. These are more senior patients, new significant neuropathy, hearing loss, heart failure, performance such kidney function, all of those issues. And the question here is, which parameters do you consider when you determine a patient's eligible for, I would say here the question is platinum. Of course, when we say platinum, it's cis and carbo. Uh, so let's answer the question here. Which parameters do you take into account 
what do you decide, let's say, cisplatin or carboplatin, uh, in the first line setting of advanced urothelial cancer? Per performance status, creatine clearance, neuropathy, heart failure, all of the above, some of the above. Music is on. Scott, I'll make sure I give you, I'll give you a few minutes at the end. <laughs> one slide a second. <laughs> so three quarters of you said all of the above, one quarter some of the above. Awesome. So how do we define cisplatin eligibility? This is based on the Galski criteria. Uh, this was published in JCO 2011 and look at you know, all the things that were in the previous slide. More recently, Dr. Gupta from Cleveland Clinic is running an effort to define platinum ineligible patients, meaning those who cannot receive even carboplatin. Equal PS of 3, creatine clearance below 30, neuropathy grade 2 or higher, heart failure, uh, and equal PS2 plus creatine clearance uh, below 30, and heart failure class 3 or higher, uh, so symptomatic heart failure. These are the criteria that if any patient has any of those, may not feel comfortable giving carboplatin, and this is, of course, the manuscript under development. This is a consensus based, uh, based on 60 medical oncologists who answer these questions. Uh, there have been many trials looking at the, at the question, how can we improve upon platinum-based chemotherapy? And many of those trials have resulted with not changing practice. But the one trial that actually changed practice is the Javelin Bladder 100 trial. Uh, we have talked about that before in the last about three years. Uh, this is a trial in the switch maintenance setting. Uh, this is a trial for patients who have achieved response or stable disease uh, in, uh, uh, in first-line metastatic urothelial cancer. So those with progression did not go on the study. And this is Avelumab, anti-PDL1, plus best supportive care, versus best supportive care alone. Primary endpoint was overall survival. This was met. Uh, this was an update from ASCO-GU last year. You see the median overall survival approaching two years from the time of starting Avelumab maintenance. And there was also a significant prolongation, not only in overall survival, but also in progression-free survival. And this benefit appears to be across the board in different subsets of patients. Again, those uh, um, uh, little um, uh, slide there, you see that the benefit seems to be consistent across the group, you know, with different degrees of benefit. Patient report outcomes is important. Quality of life matters. We published this manuscript at uh, uh, European Urology a few months ago, and we saw that the OS and PFS benefit with available maintenance came without significant detriment in quality of life. So these patients were able to maintain quality of life, which is important metric for them. Uh, and this is probably because you delay time to progression uh, with symptomatic progression. And, and uh, actually tomorrow, we have two interesting posters. One of them is called Patriot 2. This is an observational study looking at real world data in frontline setting of advanced urothelial cancer. There are multi -institution, multiple institutions participating. I will welcome you to our poster. I think it's at the bottom of the slide. So come over, we'll talk about the data in detail. And Dr. Pakaludi, who is sitting here in the front table, is presenting some real world data with available maintenance from 26 centers in US and Europe. So exciting to see this data in the real world practice with maintenance available, how these patients fare outside clinical trials. EV302 is a very important phase three trial looking at Pembro plus EV combination versus chemotherapy. That's a, one of the biggest trials to look for. It will probably result in the next year or so. Pembro EV is a very com promising combination versus chemotherapy. A lot to be discussed about checkpoint inhibitors and plantar refractory disease. The take-home point is if you have a patient who get maintenance immunotherapy, they get a velumab. If they have progression, on chemotherapy and they never go to maintenance, the checkpoint inhibitor of choice is pembrolizumab. And I know 
Dr. Zhang, we serve many patients who you know, have been in that scenario, uh, and PEMBRO is a, uh, one of the checkpoint inhibitors with level one evidence in platinum refractory immunotherapy naive disease. The response rates remain low, that's why we do combination trials. And again, tomorrow more, tomorrow we're going to present data from cohort three of trophy trial, and Dr. Tagawa is part of that. So trophy tr uh, trial, cohort three, such tuzumab plus pembrolizumab combination. Uh, very quickly, erdafitinib is an FGFR inhibitor. This has FDA approval accelerated for patients with FGFR two or three, activated mutation or fusion. Uh, and this is given at eight milligrams once a day based on the phase two trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Lorio uh, and, and colleagues, 2019. And this is, again, single-arm study, erdafitinib FGFR inhibitor, response rates between 30 and 40% for FGFR two or three mutation or fusion not amplification. Uh, so it's very important to look at the NGS panel and check you know, for those FGFR2 or 3 mutations or fusions in those patients. Uh, of course, uh, uh, the, you see on the right part of the slide different subset of patients. Toxicity can be relevant. And of course, we select the patients based on the biomarker. At the same time, we have to send the patients to an ophthalmologist at baseline. This drug requires uh, eye exams on a monthly basis initially and other side effects, stomatitis, fatigue, ponatremia, hand foot syndrome, visual changes so on and so forth. There's a, um, of course, a phase three trial ongoing, uh, the third trial, and we're going to see whether the phase two data pan out in the phase three study. And that's a phase three trial, erdafitinib compared to pembrolizumab, second line platinum refractory, or erdafitinib versus taxane or vinfluin for those with prior immunotherapy. Very interesting data with antibody drug conjugates, anti-HER2 uh, is something that comes up in the pipeline. Uh, the system of Adotin is a compound made in China and now is uh, actually licensed by a US company. Combination of between anti-HER2 ADC plus sequence inhibition, very promising data. So stay tuned, I think anti-HER2 are very, very promising agents in the future. And uh, uh, here you have the uh, slides looking at the uh, antibody drug conjugate against uh, HER2 and checkpoint inhibition, a slide by Dr. Galski from ASCO. And uh, definitely, uh, I want to make sure you uh, give the, uh, the stage to Dr. Tagawa to talk about it, about drug conjugates. But these are the three drugs that were approved in the last few years. Erdafitinib FGFR inhibition, as I mentioned, NGS testing is important. At the time of diagnosis of metastatic disease, look at FGFR2 or 3 mutation or fusion. And of course, uh, uh, Scott will talk about the two antibody drug conjugates and fortumab chachituzumab. One more question. 72-year-old gentleman with metastatic urothelial cancer, lymph node and lac metastasis, GFR 41 ml per minute, so not great for cisplatin with low GFR. It could be S1, got carbogem, and had a nice partial response after six cycles. Which maintenance therapy option would you give based on level one evidence? Atizio, Avelumab, Nevo, Pembro. I'm reminding you, this is based on the Javelin Bladder 100 trial that I just showed you. Please vote. Let's see what we have. Avelumab, there you go. So Avelumab was a checkpoint inhibitor tested in the Javelin 100 trial and has level one evidence in the switch maintenance setting. Glad to see that there was uh, a change in the, between pre and post. Uh, one more, I want to see Scott on the microphone. He was started on this patient side maintenance immunotherapy with Avelumab, uh, given at 800 milligrams every two weeks, the Avelumab standard FDA approved dose. Uh, now it's about four months uh, on maintenance of Velumab, and the patient has progression. Which of the following is not a reasonable therapy option? 
Another checkpoint inhibitor, the patient just had progression on a velumab, antipedal one, clinical trial, and fortumab, erdafitinib, satituzumab. Which one is not a good option in this patient? Please vote. Okay, I think we all agree. Nine out of 10 said uh, no checkpoint inhibition. And I agree, I think that option, we need more data uh, about ICI challenge. I think we have other options and all the other four options are reasonable. So I agree here that uh, I would go with one of the other options. And this is how I treat metastatic urothelial cancer in clinic, plantin-based chemofolamate and savelumab, cisplatin is preferred. And of course, we talk about Pembro as an option, second line. Erdafitinib, FGFR2 activating, or FGFR3, activating mutation or fusion, and Scott will talk about the enfortmovedotin and satituzumagovitikan, uh, the two antibody drug conjugates, and of course clinical trials are always great options. I will leave this uh, slide for you to read, and I will invite Scott to take over. Thank you. Thank you, Petros. Now you all know how fast he can talk. <laughs> All right, I can get through this. So uh, we'll, we'll leave at least some time for questions. I won't speak probably as fast as Petros because I can't. <laughs> so um, ADCs, I'm not gonna get into this in, in great detail, but there are you know, several different factors. Um, and just suffice to say, they're, they're, what happens in the body is different, largely based upon these different factors. I'm gonna leave it like that. And I'm gonna talk about a couple differences as we get into specific examples. So infortumabidotin, um, that I will likely call EV for the rest of this talk, um, has a target of nectin-4, uh, which importantly for this particular talk uh, is overexpressed in the vast majority of urothelial carcinomas. Um, it is um, linked to MMAE, which is a potent antimicrotubule drug via proteus cleavable linker, so fairly tight linker that's designed to release intracellularly. Following a phase one study, it looked quite interesting. Uh, actually, two phase ones in the same company looked interesting, and this, this drug is the one that went forward. Um, this phase two study, you can see these kind of split off in the schema, not randomized, just two different parallel cohorts, one with prior uh, platinum as well as uh, immunotherapy, and one with, that was cisplatin ineligible with prior immunotherapy alone. I'll walk you through each one of these. Um, this is the single agent dosing, 1.25 milligrams per kilograms, three weeks on, one week off. Each of these were single arm um, overall response rate endpoints, and you know we were all very impressed. This, this replicated the phase one data and uh, put things in, into context. We're used to cytotoxics in this post-platinum setting um, of 10%, maybe getting up to 15%. So this was uh, quite impressive and actually led to the, the initial accelerated approval of this drug. Um, in the post-IO cisplatin unfit setting, very similar data. This led to actually a broader approval accelerated of one prior line of therapy. That was backed up by the confirmatory study EV301, which took the same drug, same schedule, three weeks on, one week off versus dealer, limited dealer's choice, basically taxanes uh, in the United States or where vinflunin was available, vinflunin with the primary endpoint of overall survival. Uh, and you can see here, uh, this made the New England Journal to finger tests, an improvement overall survival 
versus dealer's choice chemotherapy. Um, and the, sec and the smaller bullet points at the bottom, the additional secondary endpoints for e efficacy were also met, PFS, uh, response rate, disease control. Um, you don't have to go through this forest plot overall, but overall, each individual subset, um, there's some very small ones, but every um, individual subset benefited from EV versus dealer's choice chemotherapy. Uh, adverse events, you can look at the, the specific table I have on the, on the right, um, called out some of the, the key factors. So lumping across trials, I would say that rash occurs in around half, um, usually grade one or grade two, but we do see grade three and sometimes as much as Stevens-Johnson. So it's, that's not a common event, but we need to be aware of that. Um, most of the time, supportive care is all that we really need. Um, but when it does get uh, higher intensity, then uh, holding drug, potentially coming in with a dose um, reduction after improvement, and sometimes an improvement requires, or we actually know if the steroids are needed, but when it is higher grade, sometimes we instinctively give corticosteroids. Whether it improves things faster, we don't really know, uh, but sometimes these can be scary, just the way that it looks. Um, this is an AE that might happen early um, in the treatment, cycles one and cycles two, although it can happen later. Neuropathy is not, not surprisingly because of the MMAE payload, um, about half, again, the vast majority are uh, grade one or grade two. Grade two can, be, can have an impact on quality of life. If you look up CTCAE, sensory, grade two, adverse events, um, one of the definitions is inability to use a phone. Um, I think that's, I don't actually know, maybe the old rotary phones, but still, we use our phones all the time. Um, hyperglycemia was something that was identified during phase one. There were a couple of deaths, um, so it is important. We do know that I have the, the, the control rates, and despite um, the control taxanes getting corticosteroids, it was still higher. So this is something that, importantly, if you look at the label, we want to um, assess with an, with an A1C I, I think that this drug can be used in diabetics. We just want to make sure we control their glucose first. EV103 is a multi-different cohort combination study, doublets and triplets. Uh, I'm really going to talk about one specific doublet that, um, I can't remember if you show, showed the data or not, but um, the Pembro-EV combination. So this is first-line metastatic, cisplatin unfit. Very impressive waterfall, but what I think is even more impressive is, is the spider plot. And you can see, number one, there was a high response rate, and those responses were durable. Median duration of response greater than two years. Um, this is cisplatin unfit. Unmet need. Um, importantly, there did not look to be a significant increase in the adverse events, so there's RIRAs, like we'd expect with Pembroke, didn't seem to be so much higher. Um, was there overlapping toxicity with EV? Not clearly. I will tell you, as uh, someone who's used this regimen, both of them have skin toxicity, not all the time. But the interpretation, what we might do with that about the skin toxicity may be a little bit different. So this is, I will more often turn to my dermatology colleagues for help and often a biopsy. Is it immune-related or is this deposition? I didn't say this before, nectin-4 is in the skin. Um, 
the, at the end of that schema was uh, cohort K, randomized EV alone versus EV plus Pembro, not designed to be compared, just to look at the different components of the individual drugs. And I would say in, in a quick summary, is this really replicated that very high overall response rate and, and really validated that EV alone almost always has this 40-something percent response rate and really validated in this frontline cisplatin unfit group. Um, this uh, combination has breakthrough designation, so because of core K, we might see accelerated approval in the United States um, to be backed up by the EV302 study that um, Petros already showed in terms of the schema. Uh, this is, there's a couple of different waterfall plots. This is the one that the asterisks are, oh, those are, so the different colors are um, by PDL1. There's another one that looks at it by nectin 4 expression, and those don't really matter. Almost everyone has high nectin 4 expression, but those are not biomarkers that, gonna, that are going to be predictive. Switching gears. Trope 2 is um, an epithelial marker on a number of different epithelial tumor types, including urothelial carcinoma. What this shows is that um, across different urothelial subtypes, except for neuroendocrine small cell, which you can see in the middle of the, of the bottom, um, high levels of trope 2 expression. So as the schizomagovitekin is a different type of an ADC. It's kind of anti-prototypical, if you will. So rather than having a really, really potent payload, one that you can't give it all systemically free, this is SN38, which is the, the main active metabolite of arene TKN, actually can be given um, systemically. Not that well, but um, um, easier than almost any other payload that's there. And this hydrolyzable linker um, is designed to release early. So it's designed to release intercellularly, but also into the stroma, so bystander effect. There was a phase one uh, study, a number of different diseases. Um, early on, we recognized in, in six patients on this phase one trial, published by my colleague, Bushoy Faltis, um, who was home writing an R1. We were <laughs> texting with him. Um, we said, okay, you know what? This is interesting. Let, let's do an expansion. There was a, a basket trial that looked interesting, um, a, a cohort of urothelial, and that led to the trophy user one study, uh, similar, if you will, to kind of that EV103 study multiple different cohorts, different patient populations, as well as combinations. Uh, I'm gonna go over cohort one, and then we'll come back to the other cohorts. Um, so this cohort one is um, patients that had at least prior platinum chemotherapy, as well as immune checkpoint inhibition. What you'll see on the middle, uh, kind of one-third down on the right, one patient did not have immune, uh, a prior immune checkpoint inhibitor, so if, if you are wondering why, because I get asked this, it's trivia if you ask me, but I guess it's asked all the time, why is there 113 in the paper and 112 in the label? That's why the FDA took that one out. Um, but heavily pretreated, generally a fourth line therapy, um, a lot of visceral disease, and analogous to uh, the um, 201 EV study, single arm, Overall response rates excluded uh, a 15% kind of historical control, and this response rate led to the accelerated approval of this drug in this pretreated patient population. You can see here the this worm plot and, and the spider plot as well as a reasonably um, 
you know, versus historical control, uh, reasonable PFS and OS, although in a non-randomized setting, we don't know exactly how to interpret that. This type of a uh, of a ADC has a different uh, toxicity profile, which is nice if we're going to use them either together or sequentially. So across tumor types, and this is approved in triple negative breast cancer and now um, HER2, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry um, ER positive breast cancer. Um, neutropenia is the dose limiting toxicity. You can see that in this urothelial population, uh, about half with uh, grade three, four in about a third. Febrile neutropenia in about 10%, um, and this is despite growth factors that were allowed. Diarrhea in about two thirds. Um, usually low grade and usually not throughout the entire uh, cycle because grade two, you know, that's, a, that's up to six times loose stool compared to baseline that some people don't wanna leave the house. So even grade two can, can be life changing. Luckily, this usually happens only for a few days per cycle, uh, but it is um, helpful to know about these and get on top of this. So um, I make sure that, that prior to cycle one, day one, there is an anti-diarrheal at home. Trophy user one, again, multiple cohorts. Um, the first three are going to be updated tomorrow. So longer follow-up of court one. Cohort two was initially preliminary presented several years ago by Dan Petrolock. Tomorrow morning, the 7 to 8 a.m. session, get up early, um, will be presented in the orally in the rapid abstract um, presentation. Um, so I won't steal Dan's thunder, but that is specifically, at least at the time of entry, platinum ineligible, as Petra was saying before, not carbo eligible, and I'll let you see that update tomorrow. Court three is also going to be updated, but I will show you Dr. Gruyas' presentation from last year. Last year, uh, this data was a late breaking, and that data came in late breaking. So we're going to really see some some updated data, and it will be different. Just as a preliminary, you need to go find this poster. Um, so an ADC IO combination, but rather than being frontline cisplatin unfit, this is post-platinum, so a different patient population. Um, post-platinum could have had more, but generally speaking, it was mostly second line. Fairly sick patients, uh, rapid progression on platinum, mostly visceral metastasis, so it, it was a sickest patient population. Uh, primary endpoints of, uh, of response, actually it's not here, um, which you can see here. Um, so based upon the pre-specified um, endpoint, this was a positive trial, and again, is going to be updated. Uh, this is early, so we'll, we don't know about durability, but you know we are going to update the response rate as well as the, the follow-up. Um, interesting across different uh, subsets. Again, when we do a combination, is there going to be any synergy in the bad way? Is there going to be more toxicity? I wouldn't say that is there officially maybe a little bit more diarrhea, but nothing that was kind of out of this world. About 10%, is this on the slide? Not on the slide, sorry, the IRA is on the next slide. Um, so, so not so different than either one alone, but I, in my mind is, could diarrhea be a little bit different? What I was getting into is the IRAEs, um, not so different than we'd expect, about 10% required systemic um, corticosteroids. So, 
SG has an accelerated label for patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma, post-platinum, post-immune checkpoint inhibitor. The, the, that's accelerated based on single-arm trial. The confirmatory trial, the Tropics 04 trial, um, SG versus limited dealer's choice, just analogous to the EV301 study, fully accrued, we're just waiting for the data. Okay, question. LH is a 64-year-old female who is receiving infortimab vidotin, aka EV, for metastatic urothelial carcinoma following disease progression on both cisplatin gemcitabine and maintenance of LMAB. After three cycles, she develops a mild but bothersome rash, which you determine is CTC um, AE grade two, that means between 10 and 30% of body surface area. What is the most appropriate next step for LH's treatment? Observe the rash, continue EV. Start high-dose oral steroids and permanently discontinue EV. Start infliximab. Start topical or low-dose oral steroids and temporarily hold EV until AE resolves. Switch to a Tezo. Okay, so, you know, the, the interesting thing is that what some recommendations say and what some clinical trials say are a little bit different um, because on a clinical trial, for grade two, we could continue. Um, but the, I'd say the key here for this grade two is symptomatic grade two. So I would agree that um, some topical um, supportive care could include um, uh, an H1 blocker, et cetera, in addition to topical. And low-dose systemic steroids, steroids would be a possibility. I probably would not go with um, systemic in this particular situation because we're talking about limited body surface area. Switching to SG, which were the most common high-grade adverse events associated with tacitizumab-gavitikan therapy in trophy user one, we'll say court one. A, neutropenia and diarrhea, B, neutropenia hyperglycemia, C, rash and hyperglycemia, D, rash and peripheral neuropathy. Okay, most people got it correct the first time, and we made that a little bit better the second time. So, I th okay, so just to, cut, just to summarize, we currently have two approved ADCs for advanced urothelial carcinoma, two different targets, so part of the profiles of each one has to do with the target, uh, but it also has to do with the linker and the pay payload. So EV, um, high response rate overall, fully approved, what we will look out for in about half, neuropathy and rash. Hyperglycemia, not the most common, but can be a problem. And then we have trope tube targeting with SG, um, a different construct, neutropenia and diarrhea we will really watch out for. There is some nausea too, but usually that's, that's um, reasonably managed. Um, importantly, which I didn't get into, we know that we can use these sequentially. It's still a little bit anecdotal, but we, we, we do know that in either direction, uh, one can have efficacy after the other in the current era with SG approval after EV. That's more of the data. 
does not look so different in terms of response rates before uh, or um, after EV. So um, I basically summarize, I'm just gonna drop to the last bullet point. There are additional ADCs being investigated. Her two was already mentioned. Um, there is, one, I, the only, I only have two listed here because those are the two with um, FDA breakthrough designation. I'm not sure what's going on with the uh, anti-EPCAM one as a potential another intravesical option for non-muscle invasive. Um, but clearly, this world of self-service targeting, actually across different diseases, but especially um, also in urothelial, um, so our patients have more options. Fantastic. Thank you. Scott, one quick question for you. So someone is asking, what do you think about the role of ADCs will be going forward? You alluded in the last slide, remaining in the second line and beyond, or they're going to move in the earlier lines, first line or even new adjuvant, adjuvant. And secondly, how would you approach deciding which ADC to give first and sequence? So um, I believe that um, the data are strong and it's a label expansion. So I, I believe that EV plus Pembro is likely to move, at least in the United States, to the first line setting with accelerated approval in cisplatin unfit. Um, I didn't get into the details of the EV302 study there. You know, it started and the control arm does, for most of it did not have maintenance. Um, so, you know, that's what they're, and I don't know, it's gonna be mostly cis, mostly carbo, so we'll have to see there. But that being said, based upon the available data, I'm pretty confident it's gonna get approval and I'm probably gonna use it for cisplatin unfit. Am I still gonna use cisplatin sometimes? Maybe, I'll have to see what that, that data shows. So, um, you know, we've had, back to MVAC, two different combination cisplatin trials that beat cisplatin alone. Nothing ever really beat MVAC. <laughs> that GEMSYS was a negative trial. It just happened to be around the same with, with less toxicity. Um, but now maybe we're gonna be able to beat platinum combination. So that I think will be a major shift if that actually happens. Um, in terms of, of, let's say, kind of current on label, someone's had platinum, someone's had IO, EV, you know, even or fitnip or SG, how am I gonna pick? So the easiest way to pick for an average person is one drug has randomized data, the other two do not yet. Um, so on average, I would say go with the level and evidence and likely to use EV. That being said, if there is someone that starts off with a lot of um, peripheral neuropathy for whatever reason, um, or let's say bad diabetes, got worsening neuropathy with platinum, you know, so it's, it's both hyperglycemia as well as, as neuropathy, then I might choose SG or rifitinib if, if they happen to have an, an, um, an activating mutation. I, I agree totally. I think it's a matter of patient, you know, comorbidities, side effect profile, level of evidence to your point, efficacy, convenience, treatment burden, all those factors, like going back to your NMIBC discussion. So exciting. I think we have a couple of more polling questions. Is that right? Uh, can, so we're gonna advance the slide and see what we get. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, I think we're probably near the end. Uh, Justin, anything else we need to cover or we're all set? I get a green light and I have a green button here. So thank you so <laughs> much, Scott. Thank you so much, Sam, for wonderful presentations. Thank you so much again, Beacon uh, sponsors for this event. Uh, we had a grant for Gilead, I think, uh, supporting the CME. And of course, to see concepts, it's just amazing to see what is happening in this disease. 
the last 90 minutes we covered, I think, the entire spectrum. So hopefully we'll have even more to talk about in the next meeting. Thanks to the audience for being here. Thanks to the virtual audience. Enjoy ASCO.GU. Good night. Thank you for attending this edition of CE Conversations. We hope it has been impactful for your clinical practice and most importantly, for the patients you serve. Please proceed to the link in the show notes to complete the post-test and activity evaluation to claim your CE credit.